Okay, so yesterday we basically went over my affirmative arguments when I do a debate with the Sabbatarians. So I was trying to prove to you guys that the Sabbath is no longer binding. There may be a few arguments that I didn't get to because, you know, we ran out of time. But like I said, later when I give you my website, you'll be able to go download those charts and look at everything. You won't welcome any criticisms or comments or anything like that. Just because I participate debating this again sometime in the future, and I want to make it better and better and get perfect, you know, the best I can. Uh, the keys to debating are, the first, most important thing, this is my opinion, is having the truth. If you have the truth, you basically get to get up there and read the verse and say it means what it says. You know, you don't have to be very talented to do that, right? If you don't have the truth, you've got to get up there and say, well, I know that's what it read, the way it reads, but here's why it doesn't mean what it says. It's a lot harder. The second thing, the second most important thing is preparation. Uh, if a person doesn't prepare, then he can, you know, mess up because he doesn't know the answers to the other arguments because he hasn't prepared. So the most important thing is to have the truth. The second thing is preparation. So the charts are, are, are the way of preparing for me. Of course, it is an audio-visual aid for the audience, but it's also my debate notes. And it's always better in a debate, and it's the same with personal work. The debate is just is exactly like personal work. When you go out and do personal work, and I try to do as much as I can, it's like a one-on-one debate. You don't normally they don't agree with you on everything you say right from the start. Do they? You have to try to persuade them, as Second Corinthians five eleven says. But it, it's better in the debate if you can uh, have a prepared answer for any argument they make instead of having to do it off the cuff. Right? You see the value in that. Now, I've never been in a debate where I anticipated every single argument. Some I had to do off the cuff, but the more I can already anticipate and have written out how to respond to it, the better off I am is the way I look at it. Okay, let's go to our homework then. We went over Galatians chapter 5 verse 4. One of the passages I I would camp on a lot in a Sabbatarian debate, and by the way, I camp on that in the one state always state debate. So you that are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So if a person tries to be justified by the law, he's fallen from grace. Obviously putting it in a negative light. Did you guys remember in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, there's some other passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Two or three of them that are very close. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, uh, uh, through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, the way I understand that passage is, is that, uh, you know, the old thing, well, why doesn't this contradict James 2.24? James 2.24, you see that out that by works of man is justified and not by faith only. And the way it doesn't contradict it is, is because this is discussing, Ephesians 2, the basis for our salvation. What earns our salvation? So what earns our salvation? All right, but what, what actually did it? What paid for it? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. So even though we're baptized, we eat the Lord's Supper, and we do these works that we're supposed to do and obey God, that doesn't earn your salvation, right? Because you can't take care of any sin you had by, 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 by this without the blood of Christ. You've got to have the blood of Christ. That's what earns your salvation. Now, these things that we do in obedience that we have to do, they're conditions that we have to meet, Right? So Ephesians 2 is discussing the basis for your salvation. Our baptism doesn't earn our salvation. Nothing we do earns it. You've got to have the blood of Christ. If he hadn't died, it wouldn't matter how many times you were baptized. James 2 is discussing the fact, do you have to meet the conditions? And the Baptist will say you don't have to meet any conditions. You don't have to do anything, okay? So Ephesians 2 is saying, 
you can't, you don't, you can't earn your salvation. Now, when I say that, there is a caveat. If you lived your whole life perfectly and never sinned, you would earn your salvation. But none of us do that, right? So Ephesians 2 is discussing the fact that you don't earn your salvation. Now, the most, now let's go to Galatians 5-4. In Galatians 5-4, you see that, uh, it says, Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are called from grace. The most typical response I get in the Sabbatarian debate is they'll say, this is just saying that you can't earn your justification by keeping the law. But you still have to do it. Just like we would say from Ephesians 2.8.9, you don't earn your salvation by being baptized, but you still have to do it to be saved. It doesn't earn it, but it's a condition you must meet. So their argument, their response to my argument on Galatians 5.4 is that this is not saying you don't have to keep the law. This is just saying that keeping the law doesn't earn your salvation. Do you see the difference? The same thing we would say about baptism. Baptism doesn't earn our salvation, but we still have to keep it. It's still required. Okay, you guys. How'd y'all respond to that? Well, I didn't get that. All right. No, that's the question. That's not the answer. That's my question. Elaborate. Okay. That's their argument, in effect. Assuming here that the argument means is a proof example of Christians keeping the law. And I, I guess, I thought because they were using this as, you're a Christian, but you still have to keep the law. And I, I guess I missed the... Because it says, you who attempt to be justified by the law. I thought, I, I, I assumed, I didn't understand what you were getting at here, so I, I assumed that they were using that to justify themselves and saying, well, they, they have to keep the law, so we also have to keep the law. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, this was another one of those things where I was, uh, uh, this is not an argument they made from Galatians 5.4 to try to prove this Sabbath. This is the argument in Galatians 5.4 I use to prove it's not binding, and this is their response to it. How would you respond to the response? So, Dan, did you get anything? How would you respond to their response? Yeah, I got the wrong verse, but here's how it is. All right. Once you live by, uh, live by the law, you cannot be justified, but rather it's Okay, cursed is everyone that, uh, okay. Let me show you guys how. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Mr. Gregg? I, I Context, 
in the Galatians context. And the whole book is about the same thing, about the law, basically. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 25, which we also went over yesterday, it says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're no longer under a law. Now, what does that imply? We're no longer under it, but what does it imply about were we under it before, people under it before? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If I say I no longer uh, have uh, a Ford Mustang, that sort of implies that I used to have a Ford Mustang. So when Paul says we're no longer under the schoolmaster, we're no longer under the law, that implies that at one time people were under the law. All right? But were they ever under the law in the sense that the law, that they earned their salvation by keeping the law? No, they were never under the law. How were people in the Old Testament forgiven? Right. In in principle, it's the same way we are. It's a different law. They didn't earn their salvation by keeping the law, but they had to meet conditions. When they sinned, you remember, I think it's Leviticus 4 and 5, it talks about sins of ignorance, and they committed these sins of ignorance, they had to bring a sacrifice. So they had to bring sacrifices. That was sort of like the condition. They had to have faith. The just shall live by faith. And when it all boils down to it, what earned their salvation? The blood of Christ. Romans 3, about verse 24, goes back and basically says it was the blood of Christ all the time that took care of their sins. Okay. So they met conditions. Granted, their conditions were different than what we have to meet, right? They didn't have to be baptized. They met conditions. And then when they met the conditions, they were forgiven. And it was based upon the blood of Christ. But, of course, the death of Christ was to come. Whereas for us, it's the death of Christ that's already occurred. But that wouldn't make any difference. But this passage, Galatians 3.25, says we're no longer under the law. That implies they were under the law. But they were never under the law in the sense that it earned their salvation. So Galatians 5.4 is not talking about you're not justified by the law in the sense that, it's, that you're, 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 uh, you're not justified, you're, uh, it doesn't, the law doesn't earn your salvation. Because the law never earned their salvation. But what the law that's talking about in Galatians 3 and 5 is something they were under at one time. Something has changed. They were under it, they're not under it anymore. That's not talking about earning it, because they were never under the law in the sense that it earned their salvation. They were under it in the sense that it outlined conditions they had to meet in order to receive the salvation for provided by Christ. Remember, it's made every year, and it was not until uh, Hebrews 9, 15, 7, the three conditions of the mediator of the new covenant, the means of death, the blood of Christ, or the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So they are saying the same means that we are. Yeah. Yeah. Here's that passage in Romans 3.25 I was talking about. It says, Who God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now, do you remember what the controversy was about circumcision in Acts 15? The controversy is, if you look at Acts 15 verse 1, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. The issue is not, does circumcision earn our salvation? That's not the issue with circumcision in the book of Galatians. The issue of circumcision is not, does circumcision earn our salvation? It never earned anybody's salvation, not even the Old Testament. The issue is, do you have to do it to be saved? Is it a condition that you have to meet to be saved? 
So when Galatians 5, 4 says you're not justified by the law, it's not just saying you don't earn your salvation by the law. It's saying you don't have to meet the conditions laid forth in the old law to be saved. They're no longer required. All right? Look also at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. You see, the issue is not, does this law used to uh, earn our salvation, but it doesn't anymore. No, it's the conditions. Circumcision used to be a condition, but it's not anymore. We still have to keep the commandments of God. We don't, do we have to keep circumcision according to this verse? No, but we still have to keep the commandments of God according to this verse. So what has really changed? The commandments have changed. This is what's obvious from this passage. The commandments. Circumcision is one of the commandments in the old law. The commandments we have to keep now are New Testament commandments. Uh, of course, we've, we've mentioned James 2.24. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Not saying that works, our works earn our salvation, but it's saying that we have to have these works. They're necessary conditions. All right, let's move on. There's some more points there, but I'll leave that to you guys. You can get, you'll get these charts later. Let's move on to the next one. Now, remember, this is another one of those things where number two is how they reply to one of my affirmative arguments. And my affirmative argument I made yesterday from Colossians 2, in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So here's some ordinances under consideration. Remember, ordinance just means something ordained, in this case ordained by God, as opposed to a city ordinance, which is ordained by a city. Okay, and then verse 16 says, Let no man therefore judge you with respect to meat or drink, respect to the holy day or the new moon of the Sabbath day. So I made the argument yesterday that, see, the Sabbath is specifically one of the laws mentioned, one of the ordinances mentioned that Jesus blotted out, took out of the way, nailed to the cross, and therefore nobody can judge us. In other words, if we don't keep the Sabbath, we can't be judged. It's not wrong anymore. Here's their most uh, usual response to that. They say, the Sabbath days here, at the end of this verse of verse 16, is not referring to the seventh day Sabbath, the one that happens weekly, but is referring to those yearly Sabbaths. Do you remember we mentioned, I think briefly yesterday, we mentioned about the seven yearly feasts? And they're, they're, I think Leviticus 23 either mentions all of them or some of them. Hold your hand there and look at Leviticus 23, verse 24 again. I think I might have turned to this yesterday. Leviticus 23, 24. Be sure to hold your hand over to Colossians. We're coming right back to it. Dennis, you want to read that for us? 23 and 24. Tw- chapter 23, verse 24, right. This is the children of Israel saying. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest. A memorial of the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Okay. Uh, yeah, alright. The Feast of Trumpets. Uh, look at verse 5. It says, The 14th day of the first month, that even is the Lord's Passover. Okay. So if I remember correctly, we may have all seven yearly feasts outlined in Leviticus 23. Verse 24 is what many call the Feast of Trumpets. Did you notice it calls it a Sabbath that day? And we pointed out yesterday that it occurs on the first day of the seventh month, so it didn't necessarily fall on the seventh day of the week, did it? It'd be parallel to our July 1st. First day of the, say first day of the seventh month, July 1st, depending on what year you're on, you fall, come, what year you're in, could fall on Monday, Tuesday, you know, you know, it says on the calendar. 
So it's called a Sabbath there. I think it, by that they were to rest that day, even if it were on a Tuesday. All right. So the Sabbatarians reply to Colossians 2, my argument on Colossians 2 is that, oh, Pat, that's referring to the yearly Sabbath, the ones that happen once a year, there were seven of them. That, of course, is part of the ceremonial law that does, has passed away. So they say, Pat, this is not talking about the seven-day Sabbath here. This is talking about the yearly Sabbath, so you can't use this to prove the Sabbath is no longer binding. That's the argument. How would y'all respond to it? the weekly. 
And when it says the Sabbath days at the end of the verse, that has to be the weekly, not the yearly, because he's already referred to the seven yearly feasts when he says the holy days, or as we call it, the holidays. Those are the seven yearly feasts. Now, let's, let's show that. In Numbers 28, there are four categories. In verse 4, it says in the, in the morning and at evening. Even. Suppose I should turn over there because I may be missing. I have to, when you're doing charts, you have to take out a lot of words because otherwise you'd never get it all on one chart. In Numbers 28, 4, it says, The one lamb shall thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, or evening. So how often do they offer that lamb? Right, that was every day, right? One in the morning, one in the evening. And then it says in verse 9, it says, And on the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year. How often did that occur? Once a week. And then it says in the verse 11 to 14, it says, In the beginning of your month, every month. So how often did that occur? Monthly. And then, look at these verses. It says, on the 14th day of the first month, the first day of the seventh month, and then it calls them the set feasts. So how often did these set feasts happen? Yeah, those are the seven set feasts. Now let's look how, how many times that this pattern is, is uh, repeated in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 2 Chronicles 2.4 says, for the burnt offerings, morning and evening. What's that? That's the daily. Remember, they had to offer the lamb morning and evening. On the Sabbath, what would that be? Weekly. And on the new moons, what's that? Monthly. And on the solemn feast, what's that? That's the yearly. Remember the set feast? All right. Second Chronicles 8, 12 through 13. Solomon offered burnt offerings every day. Offering on the Sabbath, that's the weekly. The new moons, that's the monthly. The solemn feast, yearly. See how these passages have all four categories mentioned. Second Chronicles 31, 3. The morning and evening, how often would that be? Daily. The burnt offerings for the Sabbath? New moon? Set feast. Nehemiah 10, 33. The continual meat offering? Every day. Continual burnt offering of the Sabbath? New moon? Set feast. Ezekiel 45, 17. It shall, come, it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and a drink offerings. That's every day in the feast. That's the yearly. The new moon? Sabbath. Now let's go down to Colossians 2. Notice how the similarity. I think that Paul had these passages in mind. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. That's the daily. Remember we have the meat and the drink here somewhere. Let's see. The meat offerings, the drink offerings. If you put it all together, that's obviously the ones that were to happen in the morning and the evening every day. Respect of a holy day. That's the, like the feast here. Notice in this, this one's a little bit out of order like this one is. It has the, the yearly here. But that's the holy day, and that's where we get our word holiday. They occur once a year. The new moon. So what's left? All right. So, see, they're trying to say this is the yearly feast, like Passover and Pentecost. And, of course, they don't keep that anymore. No, Passover and Pentecost and Feast of Trumpets and all those other feasts are right here, as we see from this. To me, it's obvious Paul had all of these in mind. This is the weekly. So Paul, when he says the Sabbath day is one of the ordinances that's been blotted out, taken out of the way and nailed to the cross, he's talking about the weekly Sabbath here, what the Sabbath day they think is still binding. He's not talking about the yearly feast. He's talking about, yes, they've been done away. That was right here. See, Y'all get my point? Now the next chart is, is similar to that. I wasn't able to, there's one or two more passages that like, like these here. But I didn't put them all on there just for a lack of room. So this one, just without putting the text there, I could get more on there. See, but most, all of those passages on the previous chart are on this one, but it gives us one or two more references here. But if you go to all those passages, and these are the verses here, you'll see the daily, 
this, is, this tells you the book and chapter, and this tells you the verse. You'll see the weekly, the monthly, and the yearly, just like on that previous chart. All of those passages do that. So it's very clear that the Sabbath of Colossians 2.16 is the weekly Sabbath. All right, you understand what I'm doing there? All right. Any questions or comments before we go on to number three? Okay. All right, number three. Now, this is their argument. The Sabbath law started, and I think I referred to this yesterday. The Sabbath law started in Genesis 2, 2 through 3, before the law of Moses, therefore it's still binding today. Now, this, this assumes this argument, okay? We're going to say that the law of Moses has passed away. They're going, to say, but they're going to say, but the Sabbath came along a long time before the law of Moses. Therefore, it wasn't part of the law of Moses that got done away with. It's still binding today. Got an answer, Mr. Greg? Let him go first this time. Okay. In my response to this, I will bring up Deuteronomy 5. That's a good point. That shows that really the Sabbath didn't start before the law of Moses. He says, I didn't give it to your fathers. Good point. And we'll see that in my chart. All right, Dan. Is that what you got? Did you get anything else, Dennis? No, I got verse 9 of chapter 8. Okay. First of all, though, I think in a debate, what we just did is a good thing. We showed that really the Sabbath didn't start back in Genesis. But there's one other responsibility I feel the debater has to do. In other words, uh, was that last night that Eric mentioned that when a person makes an argument, he was talking about the Watchtower folks, you need to explain what that verse means properly, why it doesn't mean their position, and then you can go to other clear passages that also refute the position. What we just did is we went to another very clear passage that refutes their contention. I still feel the responsibility. What is the correct meaning of Genesis 2 if it's not saying that the Sabbath was started back then? So there's some more ideas I'm going to talk about, but let's turn to Genesis 2. Because the first point I want to make is is that, and this is the point that Mr. Greg made in Deuteronomy 5, is the Sabbath did not start in Genesis, Genesis 2. All right? Now, I'm going to make the second point before I get through is, and the second point is going to be, even if it did start in Genesis 2, it still wouldn't necessarily mean it's binding today. All right? But, but first, let's talk about what Mr. Greg brought up. Uh, yeah, Mr. Greg. And, but, and let's look at Genesis 2 and, 2 and 3. You see, on the surface, it might look like their position is true that the Sabbath started then. It says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now on the surface it looks like God worked six days in the creation, and I assume all of us here believe in the literal 24-hour day of creation. Okay, good. Because we might have to change subjects if he did. <laughs> no, Jesus. He worked six days, and he rested on the seventh, and then it says he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He sanctified it. He set it apart. All right, looks like he's... It, 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 on the surface, I can see how they think, okay, that's when God made the Sabbath, the starting of the Sabbath here. But, but that would contradict some of the passages that the passage that Mr. Graham brought up when he said he, he didn't give it to their fathers. You know, it started on this certain time. So... 
How does anybody have an idea of what Genesis 2 is really saying here? It's not saying that the Sabbath started right then. And what I mean by that is that Adam and Eve, if the Sabbath started right then, that means Adam and Eve had, had to keep the Sabbath. And everybody between Adam and Eve and the law of Moses had to keep the Sabbath. Why does that not mean that? Well, because in this text, there's no entrance to that. It just says this is what God did. All right, but it says he sanctified it. He said it apart. Okay. And that he rested on this time. Okay. We would have to assume that he's telling us to do it, or it's not to Okay. Hold your hand here, and everybody turn to Matthew 10, verse 4. Matthew 10, 4. Now, Jesus, I believe, uh, Matthew, I should say, Matthew is in the middle of listing out the twelve apostles, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here. And at the end he says, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, now remember here, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he says, in listing out the apostles, starting with the names of the twelve apostles, in verse 12 are these, the first Simon, Peter, verse 3, Philip, Bartholomew, 4, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Had Judas betrayed him at, the po- at that point? No. But remember, Matthew wrote this book. Many years after Jesus died. So even though, and we're fixing to go into what we call the limited commission here. You know, in verse 5 where Jesus says, I want you to go out and preach and just go to the Jews only. Even though that occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Matthew's telling us the apostles he chose at the very beginning of his ministry, including one Judas Iscariot, the comment that he writes that Judas, the one that also betrayed him, that was true, not because he had betrayed him at that point when the apostles were chosen, but because it was true when Matthew wrote the book. Remember, he's writing, sometimes we lose sight of that. These books were written many years after. He's writing this book, we'll say, let's say we think that his ministry was somewhere around 26, began in 26 or 27 A.D., of course, traditionally 30 A.D., but they corrected. And let's say this book was written in 55 A.D., so that's 30-something or 40 years afterwards. So by then, of course, Judas had betrayed him. So he's saying, he chose these apostles. And the last one he mentions, Judas, oh, that's the one you guys are reading this, that's the one that betrayed him. You see what I'm saying? Right. This is what I'm told is called a prolipsis, where the author inserts something, his comment, that's not exactly the same time as what he's talking about. You follow what I'm saying? I, I, I've got to hear Matthew is discussing two events, the calling of the apostles and Judas' betrayal of Jesus, one of which occurred much later than the other, because he's commenting later. Now, I believe that's what's going on in Genesis 2. It's a prolipsis. In other words, what happened then? God worked six days. He rested on the seventh day. When did he sanctify the seventh day? It wasn't necessarily right then. That's Moses' comment. Remember, he wrote this book hundreds, is it hundreds of years after creation or more. Let's see. They guess in around 2,000 years from the creation to Noah, right? Two more thousand to Moses. So we're talking maybe 4,000 years, give or take, two or 300 years, if you, you know, margin of error. So, so he's writing this book 4,000 years after the fact occurred. He wasn't there, of course, God told him what happened. So he's saying God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That Moses' comment 4,000 years later. You see, just like Matthew had the comment that Judas betrayed him years after the apostles were chosen, years after God worked and rested, worked six days and rested on the seventh, Moses makes the comment that God sanctified and blessed the seventh day. Do you follow what I'm saying? 
That's his comment that comes later. And why do I think that? Because the passage is like Mr. Gray brought up. Because we see that the Sabbath didn't start way back then. Adam and Eve didn't have to keep it. Noah didn't have to keep it. So he didn't start the binding of the Sabbath right then. It didn't come along later because it was given to the Israelites, as we saw in a chart last night, for a specific purpose, because I've taken you out of Egypt. And that was this happened 4,000 years before that happened. Let's look at some more passages very similar to what Mr. Greg brought up. And we'll come back to this, hopefully. Here's a chart. When was the Sabbath law first given? Now, remember I mentioned last night that we're talking about the covenant that includes the Ten Commandments, right? Deuteronomy 5, as Moses called all Israel, said unto them, The statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all here alive this day. And then he goes on to say, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify. So the covenant includes the Ten Commandments. Moses says, God made the covenant with us, but not with our fathers. And one of the laws in the covenant is to keep the Sabbath. Doesn't that sound like the Sabbath didn't start until about the time Moses delivered it, right? He didn't make it with our fathers. If Genesis 2 was saying that the Sabbath, as far as being binding, started with Adam and Eve, then this wouldn't be true. He made not this covenant with our fathers. You see what I'm saying? Because Adam and Eve would have had to keep that law. Nehemiah 9, 13 through 14. Thou camest down to full Mount Sinai and gavest them right judgments, this is talking about God, and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and made it known unto them thy holy Sabbath. Now, Nehemiah wrote hundreds of years after Moses wrote, right? He wrote about the time of uh, the restoration of the kingdom, right? From uh, Babylonia. Am I thinking right? Now, notice what he says. God came down upon Mount Sinai, and he made known unto them the Sabbath. So when did the Sabbath start according to that? Right. Ezekiel 20. Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. We know what that's talking about. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them. We made the point yesterday it was a sign between God and the children of Israel. This is also showing when it was given. When it was given. It was in the time period of coming out of Egypt and the wilderness, wanderings, and things like that. Galatians 3, the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after. So the law was given 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham. Not, not the law of the Sabbath was back in Genesis. Now having said all that, and I've already mentioned to it, already alluded to it, suppose, I think we've just proven the Sabbath didn't start at the book of Genesis on, on the Sabbath day of creation. Suppose it did. Would that prove it's still binding today? Just because it was started before the law of Moses? What? Well, name some other things. Circumcision started long before the law of Moses, right? It started with Abraham. Does that prove that it's still binding? Step seven. Don't think that's binding. What about animal sacrifices? They, we read about that starting with Cain with uh, Abel, right? That was almost. That was very close in proximity to the time that God rested on the seventh day in the original creation. Within some number of few, I don't know how many years, six, eight, ten, whatever. Who knows? Twenty, twenty-five? That was long before the law of Moses. Does that prove we have to do animal sacrifices today? No. So just because something started before the law of Moses doesn't prove it's still binding today. What's still binding today? What is binding today? The New Testament. 
unless you find that law in the New Testament, it's not binding. It doesn't matter. Yes, if it was in the law of Moses, that's been done away. But it doesn't matter if it was before that. That's still not part of our law today. Uh, you remember this law in the Old Testament. This was, I'm going to extremes here. When you're in a debate, you want to show things parallel to what they're saying and show them the extreme. Something that they won't agree with. Like, if you're trying to teach somebody who's wrong to cheat on their taxes and you're preaching a lesson, you might compare it to say, you might say, that's like robbing a bank. So you're going to use an extreme. And everybody, you don't want to, you're going to think of something they all think is wrong. And you're going to say, cheating on your taxes is like robbing a bank. You know, you're going, you use the extreme. So here's one that, to the extreme. In Genesis 38, before the law of Moses started, you had the law about if your brother died without having a child, you were supposed to considering the right circumstances, you weren't married or anything, marry his wife and bring raise up seed to him. But the Seventh-day Adventists don't believe that's still binding, even though it occurred before the law of Moses. Questions, excuse me, questions or comments? Okay, like I said, you'll get these charts before the week's up, so you don't have to write all this down. You can go back and look at them. All right, number four. Number four argument, and this is uh, one of their arguments. It's from Exodus 31, 16, and 17. That verse, and I'm, I'm turning there so we can read that. Um, Dan, you want to read Exodus 31, 16, and 17? Or, Dennis, if you got it, go ahead and read it. Okay. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath throughout the generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign to me and the children of Israel forever. For on the sixth day the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Okay. It says that this Sabbath is a sign between God and the children of Israel. How long? What's the term used? Beginning of verse 17. Forever. Forever. You can see why the Seventh Adventist would use that verse, right? It, it, it's forever. How long is forever? That means it keeps on going to the end of the world. All right. How did y'all come up with the answer to that? Anybody want to raise their hands? What's your response? That was law to those who were taken out of Israel and their descendants. And verse 13, forever, against forever, as long as Israel will be the law, will be, forever, as long as Israel will be. As long as Israel is the nation. That's right. Right. Anybody else want to add anything to that? That's, that's pretty much what I've got. If it were forever, meaning to the end of time, until the end of the world, it would still only mean that the Jews had to keep it, not us Gentiles, right? Um, let's look at this word forever. Now, most of these, we're going to be looking at, when I say forever, I'm not really talking about the English word. I'm talking about the same Hebrew word that's translated forever there, okay? But we can lose sight of that because I'm not trying to get any Hebrew and Greek arguments with the audience, okay? The Hebrew word that is translated everlasting, perpetual, forever is olam. Mr. Walton would be able to pronounce that for us if he were here. Y'all know besides being a Greek expert, he is a Hebrew expert also. And it's used sometimes in the sense of unlimited duration. That's the way the Seventh-day Adventists have taken it. But sometimes in the sense of a cycle or an age. Okay? Sometimes that's right, that's how it's used, but sometimes it's used this way. And that's according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and I give you the page there. And let's give some examples of this word. Now we're looking actually at the Hebrew word that's translated this here. 
All right? But, but uh, except for maybe in a couple places in the New Testament, it would be a Greek word translated forever. But notice Exodus 21, verse 6. Do you remember back in those days, I, I'm assuming it's mainly talking about the, the, invol- the voluntary servitude that they had, where somebody maybe got in debt and he sold himself into slavery for a number of years. But suppose a servant, in that case, wanted to be your slave to the end of his life, then I think they, would they bore a hole in his ear or something like that? We can go back and look at it. What, what, is that right? And it, it was voluntary. I want, to be, I want to be your slave the rest of my life. It says this. If he does that, the servant shall serve the master, and it uses this term, forever. Does that mean until the end of the world? Or does it mean until the servant's death? Okay. Even though it uses that same Hebrew word forever, it, it's very parallel to what Dennis said in, his, in Exodus 31, forever meant until the end of the Jewish dispensation. This forever means not to the end of the world, to the end of time, but it means until the end of the servant's life. All right, Second Chronicles 2, verse 4, sacrifices are in orbit forever. Now, the Seventh Adventists, they don't think we still have to do animal sacrifices, right? So they obviously don't think forever here means to the end of time, right? They mean, they think it means to the end of the Jewish dispensation, just like Dennis said. We know from Colossians 2, in other places it ended at the cross, right? When Jesus died, he did away with the need for sacrifices. Exodus 40, 15, talking about the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, it says it's an everlasting priesthood, same Hebrew word. Does that mean that we're still under the Levitical priesthood today? That men agreed that we're not. Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed, there's made of necessity a change also of the law. Jesus is our high priest. He's a, he's a, he's a Melchizedek, not Levitical. He was Judah. He couldn't be a tribe. He wasn't in the tribe of Levi. But it still said it's everlasting, and that's the same Hebrew word. It doesn't mean to the end of time, but it means in the sense of a, to the end of the cycle or age. All right. Luke 1 says that Jesus' kingdom will last forever. But we know, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, even Jesus' kingdom comes to an end. At the end, he'll deliver up the kingdom to the Father. So that forever means until the end of the world. But it doesn't go on out to eternity, to, you know, forever in eternity. After we get to heaven, it's not, I, don't, I can't say how the relationship is going to be, but basically... Jesus turns it back over to the Father. What, what that means, I'm not sure, but the kingdom ceases at that point, according to 1 Corinthians 15, at least in the way we know it today. Ecclesiastes 1, 4 says the earth will abide forever. Now, the Watchtower folks take that to mean unlimited duration, but the Septuagint, I don't think they do, see. They agree with us. Well, they agree with 2 Peter 3, or at least I hope they do. We see from 2 Peter 3 that the earth is going to be destroyed, right? Remember, the earth and the elements therein shall be burned up. So this forever doesn't mean all the way out to eternity. It means until the, God for the second coming is basically what it means. Leviticus 16.29 says the day of atonement is a statute forever. Statute. Now, so we're reading Exodus 31 that the Sabbath was to last forever. Now let's go to some of the, these other feasts. These are the yearly feasts. The day of atonement was a statute forever. But the Seventh Adventist will agree with us that Colossians 2 says that was to stop at the cross. Same with the Pentecost, same with the Feast of Tabernacles. They, all three of these, it says a statute forever, but the Seventh Adventist and the Passover, that's the fourth one. It says that about all four of those yearly feasts, yet the Seventh Adventist, they don't agree with us that Colossians 2 says the weekly Sabbath is done away, but they agree with us that the yearly Sabbath has been done away, yet this says forever. Exodus 31, 16, the Sabbath is a sign between God and the children of Israel forever. 
Colossians 2 shows that in. It's the end of the, the Jewish dispensation. Make sense? Now, in relation to this, I'm going to show you a, an argument I use in affirmative if I have time. And it's sort of related to this, argue, this chart we just did. And I, I didn't get this, come up with this on my own. I, I forget what book I got out of. Maybe it was in Gene Frost's book. You know, he has a, a, a book, something like the $100 text, where somebody offered him $100 if he could find a text proving the Sabbath is no longer binding. Now, that was a long time ago when $100 was worth a little bit. I had a debate here in Madison, Alabama, five or six years ago, where, and uh, they, this Seventh-day Church was offering $25,000 anybody to come up with the text. You know, the same challenge, but they'll never pay you. But, and I knew they weren't going to pay me no matter what it is, but I used it to challenge them for a debate. And I said, let's have a public debate where we can, uh, uh, everybody can hear my, why I think the staff is not binding. So we had that debate. I didn't get the $25,000. But anyway, I want you to notice, I think I got this out of Gene Frost's book, anyway. Throughout your generations. So Exodus 31 says, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generation. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. I think after we go through these passages, you'll see that throughout their generations actually means to the end of the Jewish dispensation. Because once you get to the end of the Jewish dispensation, it, it, their generations stop because they're no longer Jews anymore. We're not really Jews and Gentiles anymore. You don't have to worry about what tribe you're a member of anymore, even if you are a, a Jew. It doesn't matter anymore. All right, so watch. The sacrifice for sin, Exodus 30, 10, the blood of the sin offering throughout your generation. How long was that to last, the blood of the sin offering? Till? That's right, till Christ. Circumcision. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generation. What's the indication? That stopped with Christ, didn't it? See, it stopped with the end of the Jewish dispensation. When their generation stopped, that's when that stopped. Offerings by fire. This is something the Seventh-day definitely don't do. All the males among the children of Aaron shall eat of it. It shall be a statute forever in your generation concerning the offer the Lord made by fire. You see how it has both phrases forever and in your generation, just like Exodus 31 about the Sabbath? Yet they don't believe the offerings by fire still apply today. The wave offering, you shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. They don't practice the wave offering anymore. The Day of Atonement, one of the yearly feasts. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation. You see that phrase, throughout your generations? It's over and over and over in the Old Testament. And every time, it's indicating something really of limited duration. It's forever in the sense that Dennis said, the end of the Jewish dispensation. The Feast of Booth, there's the, maybe the fifth feast that we have mentioned. You shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generation. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And I'm, I'm not mentioning the reference here, but they're on the chart. Here you can look those up. The lamps and oil, something else the Seventh Adventists don't practice. The statute forever in your generation. The Levite service. The Levites will do the service of the tabernacle. Remember, they didn't have to actually do, we'll say, the secular work. The people supported the Levites with, with their tithes and offerings and stuff. It should be a statute forever throughout your generations among the children of Israel. They have no, uh, they have no inheritance. They didn't have their own land. That, I don't know if you are aware of it, but there was a ribbon of blue that they had to wear under certain circumstances. Number 15, verse 38. Throughout their generations, put upon the fringe a ribbon of blue. The Seventh Adventists don't believe the ribbon of blue still uh, applies today. It says, throughout your generations. The one-year redemption option was selling property. Evidently, you know, you sold the property that was part of your inheritance. You had a year. You could 
you can change your mind. That says throughout the generations, the city of refuge, you remember that, where somebody went and they were claiming when they killed somebody that it was an accident? That was to go throughout your generations. My opponent agrees throughout your generations means ending with the Jewish dispensation in every case except one. In every case. You see the point? Any questions or comments on that? No. All right. Number five. Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. Uh, you know, it, what we're doing this class for, even though it's, these are debate charts, well, it'd be great if I had a debate, a public debate, that's fine. But what we're doing is, is we're trying to strengthen our faith, but we're, we, I want to encourage you to get out and try to teach your neighbor. I know you are doing that, but that's what we're doing. When you run into people who believe, keep, believe in keeping the Sabbath, you'll probably never get into this much depth here for this chart, but this is what we're, we're after, is go out and try to teach your neighbor. When I do a public debate, like I said yesterday, it's just personal work. That's all it is. It'd be like you going and, and wanting to teach somebody one-on-one, and they said, well, you know, Dan, you, you know, you've been studying the Bible a lot more than me, and I can't respond to your arguments, but do you mind next week if I bring my preacher, because I think he might be able to, and you'd say, yeah, that's fair. Because you don't want to persuade him just because he doesn't know his Bible when you don't really have the truth, right? That's all a public debate is, is letting the other guy bring their preacher, and then trying to get many folks from both sides, especially their side, to come, you know, to hear. So it's just personal work is all this. That's all we're doing. But there's an old saying that says if you're going to go to war and you want to win the war, you better win 10 to 1 to assure your victory. Okay. And that's the word we're going to try to do. You mean overwhelm them with the truth. That's right. In Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23, it says, For as the new, uh, let's see, we'll let somebody else read besides me. Turn there and read that, Dan. Isaiah 66. 22 and 23. World number 5. Question number 5. For the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, uh, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your, your name be made. And it shall come to pass that from new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Okay. So it's saying in the new heavens and the new earth, Pat, in heaven, that's their argument, it's talking about heaven, it says it shall come to pass from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. So Pat, we see that in heaven they're going to keep the Sabbath. So therefore that shows that we have to keep the Sabbath today. Response? I don't remember that, but there's no such thing as time. There's no such thing as day, a day and night. There's no sun or moon. Are we sure of that? Well, it says in the Bible, no need for sun or moon, for the God of the Lord. Okay, anything else? Well, all I can do is respond to that one. I'd have to go to the New Testament and see what Peter said about it and get the context from there and explain it to the New the new moon and the new heaven and the new moon, first of all, by the time this is going to happen, from Hebrews we can get the passage that it talks about uh, the Sabbath rest will be in heaven. We saw the 
Hebrews 4, 4 to 9. So I, I, pick, I picked up on that, where uh, the Sabbath rest will be a time where we will be, it'll be our, our rest time. So we will be, it's going to be a constant Sabbath. It won't just be a, a one week here. And then, okay. and then from there, I went to Peter, and he explained it to the and, and, and the fact that it will be all done later, so there's not going to be a physical earth or a so it helps me understand what this passage is talking about. Mm-hmm. So that, that's not what I mean by that. Okay. And Diane, do you have anything you want to add? I think that Hebrews 4, verses 4 to 9, is speaking of the Sabbath as a day or a time of rest. Basically, uh, the interpretation would be the Sabbath is just a time of rest, which is the time that we are in heaven with him. Okay. And one of my questions deals with Hebrews 4, because they use Hebrews 4 as an argument for their position. That's uh, question number 12. Uh, all of these are good points. Here, here's how my chart deals with this. Remember, their argument is, is this is talking about heaven, and, and I think it is talking about heaven, but, but well, maybe we should ask Mr. Waldron since he knows the Old Testament a lot better than I do. It says, from one Sabbath to another, that shows that they're going to move and keep the Sabbath in heaven, therefore we have to keep the Sabbath today since we're going to keep it in heaven. Well, the first thing I would ask is, well, what about the new moon? It didn't just say from one Sabbath to another, it says from one new moon to another. So according to that logic, in heaven we're going to keep the new moon observances, and since we have to keep it in heaven, according to their logic, we have to keep that today. Yet the Sabbath Adventists don't believe in keeping the new moon anymore. They think that was part of the ceremonial all that has passed away. But according to their reasoning, if this proves we have to keep the Sabbath today, the new moon is mentioned just as prominently, we have to keep that today. Even if Isaiah 66 were saying that the Sabbath would be binding in heaven, it is not coming now. Coming now is coming during the days of the new heaven and the new earth. Things are not necessarily the same now as then, for example, when you have marriage in this world, but there will be no marriages when we get to heaven. You follow what I'm saying? So just because something is going to be a certain way in heaven doesn't necessarily mean it's that's the way it's going to be here. We have no marriages in heaven, but we do have marriages here. So even if I were to grant that we're going to have to keep the Sabbath in heaven, which I don't believe that's true, that wouldn't necessarily prove it is binding now. This passage is simply saying using new moon and Sabbath to mean from one month to another and from one week to another. Or as a month, we might say as the months and weeks go by. And that's exactly what the Sabbatarians believe the one month to another means. When I've asked them, they say, well, that just means from one month to another. Well, I agree. And so it just means from one month to another and from one week to another. It's not really saying that we're going to have to keep the Sabbath in heaven. Questions or comments before we move on? Yes, yes, they do. Are you, you sound incredulous about it, right? Let me tell you one, one of my, uh, I've done personal work, just one-on-one studies with stepdad's guys, and one time the guy said this. He was trying to prove to me that the Sabbath is binding today. And he said, I'll use your name, Dennis. How many churches are there in Revelation 2 and 3? Now, Pat, now Dennis, we're talking about what day we should worship on. Now tell me how many churches are there in Revelation 7, 2, and 3. I mean, chapter 2 and 3, Revelation 2. There you go. That proves it. It's seven, right? There's seven churches, so we ought to worship on the seventh day of the week, right? Doesn't that follow? So that's the kind of argument they use sometimes. Proves it beyond each other without. 
Now turn to Matthew 55, verses 17 and 18. We've got a light we can turn on. We'll turn it on. Thank you. Think Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Mr. Greg, you want to read that? Do not think that I gave you to destroy the law of prophets, I did not come to destroy or fulfill. For surely I say to you, from heaven and earth, pass away, one child and one fill, but by no means pass the law, the law is fulfilled. And read one more verse. Uh, verse 19. Oh, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall he call least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great. Okay. Notice verse 17 and 18. Now, I'm, I'm making the argument like they would make it. See? Pat, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law like he said he is. Not one thing is going to pass from the law. We have to keep it all. We have to keep it. He didn't destroy it. Hey, Greg. Let's see. Mr. Davis, right? What's your first name? Matthew. Matthew. Do you see their argument? So it says Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. Good point. Very good point because notice he says not one, even one jot or one tittle shall pass. So it wouldn't just be the Sabbath, would it? If this means we have to keep the law when it says he didn't come to destroy the law, that this would especially mean we have to keep every single thing because he says not one jot or one tittle will pass. Anything else? Okay. We are showing that the New Testament that went into effect after the death of the testator. Alright? That may be on my chart. Let's look at let's look at how I respond to that. I think this is a, this first point is the same thing Dennis just said. If, it, if this is saying the fact that Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, if it's saying that we still have to keep the law, then it wouldn't just be the Ten Commandments we still have to keep. It would include every jot and every tittle, even the least commandment, even the animal sacrifices for sin. That's your point. Now, I want you to look at Matthew 5, 17 and 18, because not only does this not prove their position, it's actually a good argument for our position. Because notice, what does it say in verse 18? It says, So heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no one pass from the law till when? Okay, when was that? How do we know? What did verse 17, what it just got through saying in verse 17, what did Jesus come to do according to verse 17? He came not to destroy it, he came to fulfill it. And then he says, and it's not going to pass till I do fulfill it. So that implies, far from implying that the law is going to keep on going, it implies that it will pass when he fulfills it. Verse 19 is talking about in the meantime. In the meantime, it's not going to pass until it's fulfilled. So in the meantime, do not teach somebody to violate these laws. He's meaning during his personal ministry. Because it hasn't been fulfilled yet. But once it's fulfilled, he's saying, and that's what he came to do, then it would pass. Isn't that the implication? Here's, here's a good illustration of this. Let's suppose I have a dentist appointment. Should I have an, a dentist, uh, an appointment with a dentist and announce to the receptionist, I come in, say it's today at 4.30, and I come in the dentist saying, I say I have come, I have not come to destroy my appointment, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? That means I'm not canceling it, but I'm going through with it. But once I get through with it, I'm done with it, right? I've not come to destroy it, the, the dentist appointment, but to fulfill it. I would complete all that the appointment called for. I would have fulfilled the appointment and not destroyed it. Would the appointment still be in force after 
We're done? No, it was fulfilled. So it was with Christ. When he fulfilled the law, the law passed. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says so. Make sense? Absolutely. 